So here we go. We are continuing on. Who enjoyed Pastor Chad Hayes last week when he shared God's word? Wasn't that wonderful? He did a really amazing job last week. He's a dear friend of mine, and I just appreciate his heart and Rachel and his family. And so we will definitely be getting, getting them to come back. They are, they're a great ministry couple. And God is, it seems like God might be opening up a door for them for, for some future ministry uh, in some other areas. And so just continue to pray for Chad and his wife, Rachel. So we are in our series, uh, uh, Do Not Be Anxious, and we are in week three of Do Not Be Anxious, and we're finishing the book of Philippians. So we have, uh, we have one more message. So next week will be the last message in Do Not Be Anxious, and it'll be the last message in the book of Philippians. So the book of Philippians, as we've been talking about from the very beginning of the book, this is a book about joy. It's a book about the Apostle Paul reminding the believers at Philippi that they have reason to have joy in their life because of what Christ has done in their life. But as we've gone through the book, we've seen that there are, there are things that can come into our life that can, that can try to sap our joy in Christ. And we looked at false teaching and false teachers and how, and how the enemy wants to use false beliefs in our life to take our joy in Christ from us. And then as we begin to, to progress through the book, now we're in this, this section having to do with our life, with provision in our life, with the place that God's placed us in our life, and how there are lots of opportunities in our life to be anxious in our life because of a lack of provision, because of a, a lack of, uh, of, of the Lord doing maybe what we think he should do. Have you ever been there in your life where you think, well, Lord, why are you doing this in my life? I thought... This is the way things were going to turn out. I thought this was the type of marriage I was going to have, family I was going to have, house I was going to have. I thought this was the type of job I was going to have. And, and, and there's certain things that come into our life. I didn't think I was going to get sick. I didn't think I was going to have that diagnosis. And so we have anxieties and worries that come into our life. And so Pastor Chad talked last week about the things that we think about. And how it's important that if we are going to battle against and win the battle against anxiety in our life, we're going to have to think the right thoughts. And I loved how he, he focused it all on Christ. That Christ is lovely. Christ is just. Christ is pure. Christ is the one that we should focus our attention on. And that's how we battle anxiety. And so now we're going to continue on in this thought. And we're going to look at, I would say, probably one of the most popular scriptures in America, if not the world, but it's been popularized here in America. It's Philippians 4.13, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But about something just to kind of talk about that scripture for a second. So this is a shoe that's made by Under Armour and it belongs to my son Joel. And this is the shoe that is made for Stephen Curry. Who knows who Stephen Curry is? Any Stephen Curry fans? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, they're, they're, he's hurt right now. He broke, he broke his hand and looked like the Warriors are going to be in line for a lottery pick in the NBA draft this year. Uh, they can't really do a lot of things right now. <laughs> but on the back of Curry's shoe, uh, and, and, and certain shoes that will be written, it will be printed on the side of the shoe. But it says, I can do, right here it says, I can do all things. And Steph Curry says that this is his life verse. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And of course, they didn't have... They couldn't put all of that on the shoe, right? So they can pick what they're going to pick. And, and they put, I can do all things. So here's what I want to tell you about that verse, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That verse has been reduced to, I can do all things. And that's kind of the interpretation that is popular in our culture today. That, that really, 
just through God you can do all things. You can do whatever you set out your mind to do. If you have enough willpower, you have enough strength, you can do all things. And really, that's not what that verse is really talking about. There's a specific context. And what I want to tell you is that when you read the Bible, there's a phrase I want you to always think about. It's the phrase this, that context is king. Context is king in biblical interpretation. When you're reading the Bible, you got to look at the context. Look at what is said before. Look what is said after. Look at the, the whole picture of the book that you're in, that you're reading. Look at the whole picture of the Bible. And so context is king. So is the Apostle Paul saying that I can do all things? Is he saying that no matter what it is, I can do? And, and here's what I want to tell you. I could think in my mind that I could be an NBA basketball player. And I can quote Philippians 4.13 and say that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But I want you to know that that is not going to happen. Because I, I could work as hard as I want to work, but I am 5'11", 5'10 and a half, and 140 pounds, and it's not going to happen. I am not going to be an NBA basketball player, and I can quote it till I'm blue in the face. And that's how sometimes we do with scriptures in the Bible. We try to make them just apply to whatever area we want to apply to. But when we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about worry, there's a specific word that the Apostle Paul is applying this to. And I think the NIV interprets or, or, or translates this verse very well. This is Philippians 4.13 in the NIV. Let's read this. I can do all this. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And I think that's the better in interpretation, better translation of what the Apostle Paul is saying here based upon the context. So, so, so the question would, would, would be this. What is the this that the Apostle Paul is saying that Paul will have the strength through Christ to do? What is the this that we through Christ will have strength to do? What's Paul talking about surrounding Philippians 4.13? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's read it. Philippians 4, this is a section we're going to cover, 10 through 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know that I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So what is the context of that bold declaration that the Apostle Paul is saying? That God is going to give him the strength to be content. It's a, it's a scripture that's talking about contentment in our life. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. And it's interesting, the Apostle Paul is writing this. He's saying that Christ is going to give him strength to be content while he is chained to a Roman soldier. While he is in prison, while he is living under persecution, he is saying that Christ will give me strength to be content. No matter the circumstances, whether I'm in hunger and he was in hunger. Whether I have plenty and he had plenty, whether I'm shipwrecked and he was shipwrecked, whether I have a home or I don't. He said, no matter what circumstance I'm in, Christ will give me the strength to live a life that is content, that is satisfied with who Christ is, where he has me, and what he's doing in my life. Amen? Is that what you want? It's what I want in my life. I want the secret of contentment. And the Apostle Paul says... He says, I have learned the secret of being content. And I, I just want to define contentment. 
Because sometimes we can think of contentment as somebody kind of, kind of selling out and just not having a hunger in their heart to be the best. And so they're just content. And that's not what we're talking about here. So I would say a, a, a biblical definition, biblical contentment would be this. If you, are, if you are content, it's a satisfaction with what the Lord has provided in your life. That's a biblical contentment. It's a satisfaction with where God has you, the job you're on, the marriage you're in, the kids you have, the money, the amount of money you have, the possessions you have. You have just this satisfaction and this thankfulness. Well, sinful discontentment would be this. It's an ungratefulness for what God has provided that leads to a craving for what you don't have. It's an ungratefulness for what God has provided in all these categories in our life that leads to a craving for what you don't have. That's a, that's a sinful place of discontentment. And so the Apostle Paul said he's learned the secret of contentment. So that's what I want to talk about. That's the question I want to answer. What are the secrets to contentment? So I began to think about that this week as I was studying. What, what could we say, based upon what we see in Scripture as a whole, that we could say would be the secrets to being content in our life? And I think the first one's pretty obvious to us. And this is the first secret to contentment. Quit the comparison game. Quit the comparison game. One primary way discontentment finds its way into my heart and into your heart is whenever we look across the fence at somebody else. Have you experienced that? I have. Look, I, I, I like vehicles. I really do. I like certain types of vehicles. I like nice vehicles, vehicles I can't afford. <laughs> and sometimes when I look at those nice vehicles on the road and I think, I would really like that vehicle. That, it, it, every once in a while, I'll be driving my 2002 Chevy Trailblazer. It smells like a gas leak right now, currently. <laughs> I need to go get it fixed. Uh, and I think, man, I really, I really don't want this vehicle. But then I'm reminded that it's paid for. I have no note on it. God blessed me with it, right? And, and, and that's kind of how it seeps in, this discontentment, this dissatisfaction. We look across the fence. You've heard the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses? Keeping, well, here's my question. Who are the Joneses? And what, why does their opinion matter in the first place? That's what I want to know. And here's the thing about the Joneses. I know the Joneses are looking at you as well. They're looking at me too. And they're dealing with the same struggle. They're thinking, man, I wish I had a wife like that. I wish I had a husband like that, a house like that, a car like that. I wish I had a bass boat like that guy has. And so this is the comparison game. This, when we compare ourselves to other people, it breeds discontentment in our life. When we look at what they have, what we don't have, when we look at their position, sometimes we, look, we can look at people and they ascend the ladder of success. And we can say, man, man I wish I had that. Because probably they're a little bit more happy than I am. We start comparing. What does the Bible say about comparison? 2 Corinthians 10, 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. It is not wise to compare ourselves amongst each other. This is not a competition. This is not a rat race to see who can accumulate the most things, have the most successes. This is not what the Christian life is about. That may be what it's about for those who don't know the Lord. But here's the temptation is that we can be tempted to be sucked into that rat race of this life. 
to follow, to compare the successes and the things we can accumulate in this life and to get sucked into that and to have our, priori- have our priorities misguided because we're looking at what other people have, what they accomplish. So here's what I'll tell you. Comparing your successes with other people's successes is not wise. And to say, I've reached up to this point in my career, but man, look at what they've done. Look at what they've accomplished. It's unwise to do that because God has you where he has you in the season of your life because he's working a bigger plan in your life. He's working a different plan than what somebody else has. So you can't compare what someone else is experiencing and accomplishing because God's doing something different in them than he's doing in you. So we we have to quit looking at what the Jones family is doing in their life because God's doing something in me that's different. Comparing your successes with other people's successes is not wise. Comparing your possessions with what other people's possessions are is not wise. And do you, know, do you want to know why? Because it's probably the case that they're in debt up over their head for what they have. Maybe not. Maybe they have a six-figure salary and they can afford whatever they're buying. But odds are, if you, if you study statistics about debt and credit card debt and things that people do to have what they want... It's unwise to compare what you have to what someone else has who has something better or greater than you have because you don't know what it took to get what they have or how long they've been working to get that and where you are in your life and how God is unfolding what you have. And, and, and look, it, it's unwise to compare. Comparing your giftings with other people's giftings is not wise. God's gifted you uniquely for certain callings and things to do in this life to bring glory to his name. Our giftings, our possessions, our successes, our family. Here's a tricky one. Sometimes we can look at other people's families and we can say, oh, they have the perfect family. Look at the wife and the husband and the kids and they're all such in neat order for family photos. Like, they just look perfect. All have white teeth. They're all smiling. All the eyes are open. Look at that. It's like the social media problem. Oh, I didn't know pictures were coming up. Here we go. Look. It's perfect. Look at the baby sitting on the mom. I don't know who these people are, but look at that baby. Eyes wide open. That is a miracle of God. This is what I call perfect Instagram families. Look at this family. Look how precious. Just perfect, smiling. And let's just leave the picture there for a second. Let's think about that. That's what we see when you're scrolling on your phone on Instagram, these perfect Instagram Facebook families, and you begin to compare. But you know what the reality is? Let's look at some other pictures. This is actually what it's like. That's what it's like. That was the, that was the storm before the calm. <laughs> look at this one. Look at that child back in the woods back there. That's, he, she's not coming for the family photo. That's what happened. And look at this one. Can y'all see what's going on there? <laughs> you know what happened after that? They cleaned the boy up. They said, now smile. <laughs> and they took a picture And you scrolled on social media and you saw the perfect smile, but you didn't know he vomited right before the picture. You can't compare what you see. The same would go with houses, moms. Let's look at some houses here. Oh, no, this is my favorite one. Look at that one. (laughs) That's reality right there. Have you seen those perfect beach photos? Everyone's in white. Why why is it you got to wear white for a beach photo, by the way? I don't know the answer to that. Does anybody know, really? I don't know. But let's look at some houses. Look at that house. Perfect, neat, and in order. Look at this. 
But you know what it looked like an hour before they took the picture? It looked like this. That's what my house looks like. And it looks like this. Right? That's normal life. And when we compare our life that looks like this, disorganized, and our kids aren't well-behaved all the time, and we, when we compare it with a snapshot of somebody's life frozen in time, we can become discontent with what God has given us in our life. And I'm here to tell you that I will take the messy house and the vomiting kid and all the things that come with an imperfect life over trying to keep up an image of perfection any day. Because, look, that's, that's life. That's what we've been given. That's the joys of life. That's the journey of life. My wife's not so sure about the, 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 the messy house. I think she'll take the, she would take the clean house. When we compare our worst day, listen to this. When we compare our worst day with someone's best day that is frozen in time, this is unwise. Discontentment breeds covetousness. Discontentment, when we compare it, breeds covetousness. When we fail to trust God with what he is doing with us in the season of life we are in, we can begin to be discontent. When we fail to trust God with where he has us in our life, we can begin to be discontent. And then we, if we're not careful, can begin to look at other people, possessions, and places with eyes of covetousness. And discontentment can lead to sin, and we covet someone else's spouse. We covet someone else's job, someone else's possessions. If only I had a wife or a husband like that. If only I had children like that. If only I had a job like that, a house like that. The list could go on and on. We must learn to be content with what God is doing in our life. I love Psalm 139. Listen to this. For you formed my inward parts. This is God speaking about us As human beings, as his creations, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depth of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Listen to this. In your book, this is God. In God's book, in his eternal understanding in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when they were not even yet there do you understand what we're, what, what the psalmist is saying here god's got your life he's working a plan and you may think well look i'm kind of sidetracked here no god has you exactly where he wants you because he's working in your life and sometimes we have to stop We have to look up and we have to evaluate and say, God, I'm going to quit thinking about what I don't have and what I wish I had. I'm going to quit thinking about the job that I don't have and the money that I'm not making. I'm going to look up and I'm going to say, God, you knew. You knew me before I was in my mother's womb. And you are working a plan for my good, but ultimately for your glory. And I'm going to quit the comparison game. And I'm going to sit back in a position of trust of your plan. Amen? Amen. That, 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 that is, yes, amen. That is a challenge in our life. We must learn to trust God in whatever state we're in. So I just want to say this real quickly before we move on to the second secret of contentment. The pursuit of success is not wrong. For all you business people here and those of you who, are, who, have, who have careers that are, you're trying to move forward and, and accomplish. Look, we all want to move forward and accomplish and be successful. The pursuit of, sex, of success is not wrong. But the pursuit of success that has as its foundation discontentment and dissatisfaction will only lead in a circular path back to the same place. 
If you don't get rid of discontentment in your heart and that's what is motivating you for success, you'll have the success, but you'll still be discontent and you'll still be on the path of chasing something that you don't have. Quit the comparison game. Quit the comparison game. It leads to unhealthy thinking. That leads to unhealthy living. Stay in your lane. Tunnel vision. Focus on God, on Christ and his glory. Amen? Second secret is this. Don't buy into an American view of possessions. Quit the comparison game. But here's another. Builds on this first point. Don't buy into an American view of possessions. Now, I could have used Western view, but, but we're Americans, and we live in America, and I'm preaching to an American church. So here's what I want to tell you about the American view of possessions. What do I mean by an American view of possessions? We have come to believe in this country that there should be an expectation that we should possess the things we desire, the things that we want most. And the things that we desire, the things that we want most, become the standard for normal possession in our life, right? This is the, what we want most, what we desire should be what we have. It is a right. There's an entitlement mindset in this country that is developed because of, our, because of our blessings, because of our wealth that we have in our country and our standard for living at, at a base level is greater than 99.9% of the countries around the world. We're at a base level, at a higher level of what we can acquire through our wealth. And so I just, I know this is going to kind of be a little funny as we talk through this, but I just want us to think, I want us to think critically about what we possess and how an American view of an entitlement mindset can impact us. Let's think about it just for a second. Cell phones. How many of you have a cell phone? How many of you have a cell phone but don't want to raise your hand when a pastor asks you a question? Doesn't it bother you? I don't, probably don't raise my hand when pastors ask questions. I'm rebellious like you are. Cell phones. I remember when I didn't have a cell phone. I remember when I got my first cell phone at, at, at 18 years old. I couldn't get one until I was 18 years old because I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford the cell phone payment. But I remember it was a Motorola Razor flip phone. But what did the world do before a cell phone? What happened when a husband left for work and there was no cell phone at all? It's amazing that we even made it to, to, to 2019 without cell phones. Can you believe it? We're actually here. What did we do before we had the smartphone? I remember the first smartphone. I looked at it and thought, oh my goodness, the internet in the palm of our hands. What did we do before Google? How did we know anything before Google? How did we have answers before Google? I have no idea. Maybe there was these things called encyclopedias and dictionaries and, and teachers you guys see what I'm saying? Life doesn't stop because you don't have a cell phone. But today in America, it is a right. They will give you a free one because you have to have one. I'm going to tell you, you don't have to have one, do you? Televisions. What do we do before television and cable, right? Cable now is an idea that that's a bare minimum. Like when you talk about your budget and you're getting married, your bare necessities, you say electricity, water, food. Cable. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Electricity, water, food, cable? How is that a necessity? It's an American view of possessions. The internet. 
This is a big one for us. The internet, there's so much things that we cannot do without the internet. But what, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, we survived before Al Gore created it. <laughs> I was waiting on that one. Uh, I was waiting on that joke. We survived before Al Gore created it. We really did. Two vehicles. That's like this bare necessity thing that we have to have. And look, I know that in, in families where there's a working mom and a working dad, we need two vehicles. But what did you do before you had two vehicles and you only had one? What did you do? You worked it out. Look, I, I like that we have two vehicles. But it's not a necessity. There's this American view of possessions that's impacted us. Two bathrooms. Two bathrooms. Who grew up with, with, with no bathroom? It was an outdoor bathroom. Who grew up with one bathroom? Yeah, now I have three bathrooms, three full bathrooms. When I grew up, we all shared the shower or the bathtub, right, mom? <laughs> we all shared it. Now I, my, my, my daughter, Eliana, has a private bathroom. <laughs> it's amazing for a 12-year-old, a private bathroom. Shower and everything. What about a dishwasher? My, my dishwasher's broken right now. It's bringing me back to the days when we were the dishwasher. I was the dishwasher. And my mom can tell you, I was the best. (laughs) Boy, when I cleaned that kitchen, it shined. I remember, I haven't taught that to my kids yet. It's because, again, they don't know anything about that. Because they have an automatic dishwasher. We currently don't because it's broken. But we are often anxious. And here's the point of all of that. We are often anxious over not having the things that that are actually not necessary. And I want you to think about, I want us all, as myself included, we need to, the, the enemy of contentment is thinking that we have to have something that we really don't have to have. And we get so anxious, I gotta have a certain type of vehicle. I gotta have a certain type of house. I gotta have a certain type of this and of that. And we can become so anxious. And when we're talking about not being anxious, we are worrying about things that we don't even need to worry about because we have bought into an American view of what possession should look like in our life. It's an enemy of contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. Did you hear that? There was no dishwasher. There was no vehicle. There was no cell phone. There was no internet. There was no TV. There was no cable. None, none of that came into the world when we were born. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these we will be content. And here's the trap on the other side. But those who desire to be rich, that's, this is kind of based on this discontented mindset, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I believe that. That possessions and money and things become a God to people. And their covetous heart wants things that they don't possess. And it becomes the God that they worship. You know, what you pursue is your God. What you pursue the most in your life is your God. And so if you're pursuing things and possessions and career uh, achievements as the greatest thing in your life, it becomes your God. And we're all tempted to do it. 
We're all tempted to do it. I want to be a great preacher. I want to be a great pastor. And the selfish temptation for me is to be a great preacher and a great pastor so people can see me, so they can watch me, so they can see it on social media, so that I can attain to something. That's the sinful propensity that I have. But, but in all of our life, whatever realm God has us, our strive for success and what we're trying to aim to do in this life should ultimately be for the glory of God in this life. It's not about us. It's not about us. Amen? What is a subtle lie that we believe when we place our hope in material possessions? Here's a subtle lie. That who I am is a reflection of what I own. Our identity becomes wrapped up in what we do and how much we can accumulate. My identity is not in what I do, in what I accomplish, or in what I own. My identity is in Christ alone. My, yes. My identity, your identity is in not in what you do, in what you accomplish, or in what you own. Your identity is in Christ alone. What, what about this world? What's happening to this world? We can't have our identity in this world. First John two seventeen. the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's all passing away. All the cars, all the boats, all of it, all that we accumulate, all my golf clubs, they're passing away as much as I love them. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, God says, that his words will not pass away. The word of God endures forever. Amen? Isaiah 47 through 8, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord had blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Amen? Quit the comparison game. It's the secret to contentment. Quit comparing yourself to the Joneses. And don't buy into an American view of possessions that you have to have something and you're striving after something that you don't even need. Those are secrets to contentment. And lastly, what is the secret to contentment? And this is the greatest secret to contentment. See Christ as the greatest satisfaction. See Christ as your greatest satisfaction. Let's go back to the text. Philippians 4.13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What's the key here? This is the culmination of what Paul is saying about contentment. He's saying that I can do all of this. I can be content in whatever state I'm in, whether I have a lot of money or I don't have a lot of money. Whether I have the possessions I want or I don't have the possessions I want. I can be content. Why? Because Christ that is in me will strengthen me to be content, to be trusting in him, to be leaning on him whenever I don't have what I want. And my life hasn't turned out like I wanted it to turn out. This is the center of contentment. The center of contentment in my life and in your life is on Christ. It's centered on Christ. The secret Paul learned and that we need to learn and be reminded of is that the strength to be content with God's provision in our life starts and ends with Christ. We must see Christ as the greatest satisfaction in this life we must see him as the greatest joy in this life go tigers is a great joy and i loved it i was cheering and dancing around the living room high-fiving everybody but christ is the greatest joy in this life greater than the greatest pleasure this life can bring 
As I was studying this and writing these thoughts down, right when I was writing down this, typing it on my computer, we must see Christ as the greatest satisfaction, as better than anything. I had my phone next to me playing a playlist of songs, worship songs on my, on my iPhone, and then this song comes on. And it's a song by Pat Barrett, and it's called Better. Pat Barrett, look it up. It's a great song. Download it. Help him pay his bills. <laughs> Pat Barrett wrote the song Better. Listen to this. All the money that the world could hold, mountains made of solid gold, riches that could buy my dreams, you are better than all these things. The prettiest face to turn their eyes, beauty that could hypnotize, the open doors that looks may bring, you are better than all these things. Your love is better than life. You are the well that won't run dry. I have tasted and I have seen, oh, that you are better than all these things. Power that could shake the moon. Most important person in every room. Status matched by only kings. You are better than all these things. You are a well that won't run dry. I've tasted and I've seen you are better than all these things. Listen to this. Being liked and loved by everyone. Approval that outshines the sun. Being cheered by all who think of me. You are better than all these things. Amen? The secret to contentment is that Christ is better. Better than what my neighbors have. Better than what I desire. Better than my, than my wildest dreams of what I could accomplish and possess. Christ is my greatest satisfaction in this life. And that is the greatest secret to contentment. Do you remember Jesus in Matthew 13 talking about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like? He gives two parables, short parables, but they're so profound. Listen to this, Matthew 13 44 through 45, he says this, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. It's like a treasure, the kingdom of God. It's like a treasure, it's hidden in a field, and which a man found in this picture, a man is digging in a field, and he finds this great treasure. He doesn't want anybody else to get it from him, right? So what does he do? He covers it up, he hides it, and he says, I gotta go buy this field so that I can have this treasure so that nobody else can get it. So that's what he does. He sells all to buy the field to get the treasure. And you know what? For us as believers, what's the, what's the parallel here? Christ is the treasure. He's worth selling all that we have. All those possessions we try to accumulate. All the successes we try to, we try to gain and earn in our life. He's worth selling all of the successes. All of the possessions. All of the relationships. He's worth selling them all. To have him. Selling it all to have him. To possess him. The parable of the pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. When we see Christ as the greatest treasure worth exchanging all to have, only then can we have a proper view of life. Did you hear that? I'm going to say it again. Listen. When we see Christ as the greatest treasure worth exchanging all we have to have him, only then can we have the proper view of this life. And I want to talk to you here this morning. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's not become your greatest treasure yet, I want to tell you that you are are missing the greatest peace that you could ever have in this life. And here's what happens whenever you surrender your heart 
your life to Jesus Christ. The search is over. The search is over. It's over. And here's what happens. You have a settled contentment in your life with Christ. A settled satisfaction in your life. There's a peace we have as believers that no matter what's going on around us in the world, I can be diagnosed with cancer. I can lose my job. I, 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 I could have to sell my bass boat to help pay some bills. I can, get, I can lose everything that I, I thought I needed and desired. But because I have Christ, I have this settledness. You have a settledness in your heart today. You can have a peace and a settledness. Have you ever heard the song by Bono, the lead singer from U2, the band U2? He has a song called, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. I want to tell you that that song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, is not a Christian anthem. A Christian can't sing that. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. A Christian can't sing that. I mean, we can sing it. You can't mean it. Why? Because you found it. You found him. Jesus is the end of all searching. He's the treasure at the end of the map. When you find him, the search is over. When you're found by him, and you found him, and he's laid a hold of you, and you laid a hold of him. The search is over. Throw away the map. You got it. Give somebody else the map. Point him to Christ. Amen. And we're going to switch right here. You guys ready for a switch? I love what Jesus does for us here. I love to look at Christ. When Christ has his rightful place as the king of our hearts and our affections, we then will begin to see a shift in what we prioritize in our life. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman? There's a woman at a well. She's a Samaritan. She's, she is considered by the Jews to be unclean. And then she's a woman. The Jewish men, purebred Jews, would have never talked to a woman. Purebred male Jews would have never talked to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. But what does Jesus do? He's talking to a woman. He's going to go talk to this woman, and he's going to, because he's on mission, He's got greater satisfaction in, in this life. He's, he's after God's purposes in this life. And this is where this idea of contentment, this biblical reality of contentment must take us in our life. This is the point of being content and satisfied in Christ is that we must be on mission in this life. So Jesus is talking to this woman. And, and this woman begins to, to, to ask him, why are you asking me for water to drink? And he says, says, if you knew who was asking you for living water, you would ask me for living water, and I would give that to you, and you would never thirst again. And she said, oh, sir, give me this water. I need this water. So Jesus begins to talk to her and walks her down this road of seeing him as Messiah. And then the disciples walk up, these kind of ignorant, they were foolish, didn't understand what was going on with Jesus yet. Listen to what they say. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. Yeah, that's, that's what I was telling you. It, it, it was crazy to them. How was he talking to a woman? But, but, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They didn't even stop to say, Jesus, why are, you, why are you doing this? They didn't stop to ask, what are you about, Jesus? What is your mission? What are you trying to accomplish? They didn't even ask him that. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come 
see a man. She became an, an evangelist. Come see a man who told me all that he ever did. Can this be the Messiah? Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And earlier in the story, the disciples had left to go get lunch. Now they're back with lunch. Some tacos, some salsa, and some chips. That's the lunch I would eat if I, if I was Jesus. But he said to them, listen to this. I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples, again, clueless disciples, they don't know what's going on. The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? He's saying, don't you say that the harvest is coming and there's, there's time we've got to wait to pluck the harvest? I tell you, look. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. When Christ is our satisfaction, we quit chasing all the things that we see right here in this life. We quit chasing the money. We quit chasing the possessions. We quit chasing earthly satisfaction. We quit chasing all these things. When we have our contentment in Christ, we are, have our satisfaction from a different place. And that's what Christ was saying. He's saying, disciples, you have an earthly perspective. All you can think about is the Burger King that you just brought me right now. That's all you can see. Somebody came and brought you food, Jesus? Jesus says, no. I have food. Food is satisfaction. I have sustenance. I find satisfaction in something that you can't even see right now. And that is what is true for us. One of the last secrets for for contentment in this life is to lift your eyes up for the fields are white unto harvest. Look up. Look up from the rat race. Look up from what you're trying to accomplish in your own strength. And the Lord is saying, I have satisfaction for you when you prioritize me as the greatest satisfaction in this life and you prioritize my glory in this life. I will set you on mission. I will send you out to your neighborhood. I will send you out on your workplace. I will send you out. Why? Because the harvest is white. What does it mean, white? It means that the tops of the grains had turned white, and it was a signal that the harvest, the wheat, was ready to be harvested. And I know it just as you know it. You look around. Look around in your life today. Look around at the people that you know. Look on your job. Think for a moment the people you work with. It's white unto harvest. It's time. And the question I would ask myself, this is, this is for me, this is for all of us. What are we waiting on? If our greatest satisfaction is found in Christ, I would say, quit thinking about here and now. Think about eternity. If heaven's real and hell is real, if scripture is true, then the greatest satisfaction we can have is in Christ. And to point other people to that satisfaction and that peace that they can have. Amen? God is calling us to lift our eyes from the earthly pursuits that are hindering us from finding satisfaction in Christ and his will for our life. The fields are white for harvest. So I just want to challenge all of us here today. Be an evangelist. And here's what we're going to do next year. I'm going to share this with you now. But next year, I'm going to challenge you next year. We've got a Christmas series we're going to start in a couple of weeks, and we're calling the series Jesus is King. 
Starting November 24th, Jesus is King. We're going to look at the Old Testament prophecies about the birth of Christ and his life leading up to our Christmas service. And then we're going to do a, a, a new year, a kind of new year series message. But, but we're, we're going to start next year. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to take at probably one or two services and it's going to be an evangelistic service. And I'm going to challenge you to bring somebody with you to church. Bring that unbelieving neighbor, coworker, family member. Bring somebody to church, and we're going to, have, we're, 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 we're going to bring people in here, and I'm going to preach a gospel message, and I'm going to give a call for people to be born again and be saved, and God's going to do his work. Why? Because the fields are white under harvest. And when we have eternal mindset and, and eternal priorities, God, and, and, and we follow according to his will, and we set our, our, our priorities straight, God will use us. And that's what I want to see more than anything in this life. I want to see this church impact this community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Stand to your feet with me. That's what we're doing next year. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. That God would raise up laborers. That would go into his harvest field. And call. Call those that don't know the Lord, to repent. Amen. I thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the truth of your word. You're so gracious to us. God, I thank you that you will help us to get our priorities straight, to learn the secret of contentment, that we'll quit comparing ourselves to our neighbors and people that have what we don't have, and that we will reject an American view of possessions. And ultimately, we will see you as our greatest satisfaction. Lord, we love you. Lord, change our hearts. Lord, for those of us here today that we've been worshiping false gods in our life, false gods of possessions and pleasures and things, Lord, forgive us. We repent today. And we return to making you our greatest satisfaction. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. See you next week.